This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come, after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. Now, I know your first and probably most immediate question is, what are we to make of glow-in-the-dark Jesus? <laughs> You've never heard anyone use the word transfigure, likely in a sentence before. That's my guess. And uh, why is Jesus talking to dead prophets? And finally, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. (laughs) How would you not tell someone when you have just been glowing in the dark? And I'm hoping by acknowledging the curiosity that I'm committing to working towards understanding plutonium Jesus here. All right? What is happening? Why does he do this? If I can get your attention long enough to stare away from the glow, we can start to understand what is happening here with Jesus at this moment in time in his ministry. And to get what's going on here, we first need to review something that Jesus himself actually takes a moment to review here, even if it might not seem so obvious. That is, firstly, we're going to look at followers of Jesus are destined for real crosses, real suffering, real difficulties, real trials and tribulations, real crosses. Secondly, we're going to ask the question, What do we need to endure real crosses? And that's where the glow part will come in. And thirdly, we'll ask the question, how do we get the glimpses of glory necessary to endure real crosses? To keep going, to keep lasting. So first, followers of Jesus are destined for real crosses. I mentioned seven reasons last week. Seven! And not to make it a perfect number. Seven reasons why Jesus the Christ had to die on a Roman cross. 
Jesus himself uh, spoke plainly, he says in chapter 8, verse 32, spoke plainly about his need to die. Jesus lived the life of always honoring God, always loving God in a way that we couldn't, so that he could die in our place the death that we deserved. The death we deserve for failing. In other words, he paid the ransom debt. We owe a life. Jesus paid that life with his own. And the major tenet of his strategy for working this cross plant, this cross plan, sorry, into our lives, to get it imprinted into our lives, is what we see in chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. Just the other day in our Christianity Explorer group, someone asked the question, what does this mean to take up one's cross? Does that, does that mean that if I choose to follow Jesus, I take up my own personal cross? And the answer is yes. We're destined for it. Just like Jesus chose to obediently endure suffering of the cross because of the joy set before him, his joy was pleasing his father, pleasing his dad. So we are to choose likewise. Choose to obediently endure opposition or hardship because you judge Jesus worth it. Now this is an important point and worth writing down. Alright? Taking up one's cross means to choose to obediently endure opposition or hardship because you judge Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. There is a me at the end of every cross. A Jesus at the end of every cross, as we saw last week. A well-pleased Savior at the end, and He is worth it. For every Jesus-caused opposition or hardship that comes your way, it's a declaration as a Christian that, yes, I'll take that up if it means gaining Jesus. If it means following Jesus. I'll do it. We've already received some examples of what that might look like in your own life. On the way in, you should have received this little postcard of the turn we're taking in our series, Ransom to Real Crosses. And you'll look on the back, kind of a preview of what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. The different crosses that Jesus asks us to take up because we judge him worth it. For instance, the cross of denying yourself Worldly significance, if that's what Jesus asks. We'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. The cross of denying yourself the comfort and social status of the in crowd, if that's what Jesus asks. The cross of denying yourself instant and tangible bliss, the easiest and most convenient road to pleasure. The cross of denying yourself marital bliss, or being denied marital bliss, I should say. It's not something we're promised. We think we deserve marital bliss. But really, marriage is designed for another purpose. The cross of denying yourself wealth or self-confidence, if it means gaining Jesus. So I hope you join us in the coming weeks to consider, is Jesus worth denying ourselves these kinds of things? These are all crosses which the disciples are going to encounter as they head down this mount, this mountain of transfiguration. So Jesus is preparing them for it. 
In verse 11, we see him prepare them once again. They asked him, why do the scribes, in other words, why do the religious people say that first Elijah must come? Their question is born out of the last words of the Old Testament and perhaps the most oft-quoted words of their day because it was the last time that God had spoken in to history. Let's read the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 4-6. through six. The prophet says this, God speaks to him saying, Remember to obey the instructions of my servant Moses, all the laws and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn hearts of fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers. That just means turn people back to the covenant of the fathers, covenant and relationship with God, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, awesome day of Yahweh, judgment, hardship, tribulation will come, destruction will come, but Elijah is going to come first, right? That's essentially what the disciples are asking here. Before things get too hard, too messy, too difficult, Elijah's going to come first, right? And restore all things? To break this down even further, you might remember the less than subtle outburst of Peter in chapter 8, where he basically rebukes Jesus. This is a little less subtle, but it has the same effect in which Disciples are still hoping for an easier way than the cross. Right? Elijah's going to come first. Right? So maybe that will happen in another generation, not in ours. It'll be easy for us, right, Jesus? They're still looking for an easier way than the cross. To which Jesus basically says, Yep, Elijah's come. His name is John the Baptist. In response to coming restoration through my cross, this new Elijah took up his cross. He was jailed. He was beheaded. And you too must imitate my cross. And whatever form that's going to take, we always look for something easier than the cross of Christ. Something a little less gruesome. Something a little less painful. Something that won't move us or change us away from the life we live now. How do we endure these kinds of crosses? How do we endure a real cross for our lives today? Having spoken plainly about real crosses in chapter 8 and heading down the mountain to experience them in earnest, as we'll see in chapters 9 and 10 of Mark, you can be sure that Jesus gives here, kind of right in the middle, exactly what the disciples need to endure real crosses. That's the point of all this. That's the purpose. He's going to give them an encounter they need to endure real suffering, real hardship, real following of Jesus. What is it exactly that he gives them? Something called the transfiguration, which literally means metamorphosis, right? A change. The transfiguration is a glorious glimpse of the resurrection to come, quite simply. It's just a little moment where Jesus decides, I'm going to show you 
what is going to happen, both in my future and in yours, if you follow me? So the prophet Daniel said this. The Old Testament prophet said this about what the glorified God will look like. The rescuer will look like when he's seated on the throne. He said this, Daniel 7 verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. That's what we read here, right? That's, that's the Son of Man's destiny. This brilliant visage of a glorified Savior. That's what we see here, right? We see this break into history in verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, and they led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I love that little human detail there, right? As if you're going to get Clorox on Jesus' clothes and make it, you know, Godlike. Still to come in Jesus' history, Jesus is crucified as he predicted. Three days later, the tomb is empty as he predicted. After his suffering, Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 1 that he presented himself alive to his apostles by many evidences, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. 40 days resurrected. Sometimes we don't hear that. We don't remember that. So many people could have disproven Jesus, but not if you're around for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. In fact, it's my opinion that the resurrection is the most credible, defensible miracle in all of Scripture, and it's also the most important. Through the resurrection of Jesus, he affirms the effect of his work on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our failure to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Through the resurrection, Jesus affords us divine power to gradually loose the power of sin over our lives. Finally, through the resurrection, Jesus pioneers the path of a future removal of the presence of sin in our lives. One day, it will just be gone. Not only our own rebellion, not only our own tendency to be self-sufficient and live life my way, All the effects of sin, the decay, the skin we wear. Jesus gives his disciples not only the hope of a future resurrection, but he gives glimpses of glory and power in real life. Glimpses of its glory and power in our present life. That's what Jesus gave then, and that's what he gives disciples of Jesus now. And that's good news. That means... There's a transfiguration of Jesus today. The Bible says that all of us who trust Christ can see Jesus clearly such that with unveiled faces beholding Jesus, we are transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. There is a transfiguration today. And frankly, I can't explain it. (laughs) I can't sit up here and give you some breakdown of what that looks like and how that changes you because you can only behold it by faith. Which leads to how do we get the glimpses of glory that we need to endure real crosses. The the power, the strength, the endurance to keep going through suffering, through tribulation, 
through the things we take up and say, Jesus, you're worth it, but man, it's hard. Jesus, I know I get you at the end of this cross, but this is difficult. This is painful. I don't know if I can do this much longer. There's a resurrection power for you. So how do we get glimpses of glory? Well, we get them when he wants to give them. And they can only be beheld by faith. God is the great initiator who just breaks into life. He still does. Breaks into our histories. He grants us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we'll either trust God enough to yield and say, I believe. I believe you are speaking to me. I believe you're trying to get my attention. I believe the, the burning in my heart from what this person is saying or from what I, I, I am seeing is you. And we yield enough to believe. Or we hold up that wall of self-sufficiency. We say, no, I don't believe it. How do I know this is you? This can't be you. I don't want to change. And we resist. So the easy answer is, how do you get these glimpses? It's not up to you. God has to break into your life. Yet, yet this is true of any area of growth of life, of any discipline, fellowship, reading the Bible, prayer. God asks us to seek him through these avenues because they are God's chosen means of meeting us. They are God's chosen avenues of meeting us. We can't just then throw up our arms, do nothing, and say, well, it's up to God. So I'm not going to see any glory. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to behold his resurrection power. No, he gives us avenues, instruction to better position ourselves to get glimpses of his glory. So that's what we're going to talk about to close here. How do we better position ourselves to get glimpses of his glory? Number one, you get away. You get away. This unusual retreat with Jesus occurs for the disciples, by themselves, on top of a mountain, right? If you've gone to church for some time, you may have heard preachers, teachers, fellow church members say, you know, the mountaintop experience, beware of it, because life is lived in the valleys. Real life is lived down here, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, at home, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends. And they're right, because in the valley are the real crosses of life. The real nitty-gritty, we know this, which makes it all the more important to regularly climb the mountain, to regularly get away, which makes beaches and Sundays critical. Beaches and Sundays. Beaches, because we don't have mountains, all right? I can't tell you to go to a mountaintop here. The most I can give you is like a small dirt hill, maybe a pile of sand where someone's doing construction. I don't know. We don't have mountains, but we, we beaches, these oceans, right? When you go snorkel, you go diving, you get on the beach, are spaces where we might glimpse the vastness and the largeness of God and receive the silence necessary to hear his voice. Still, soft voice. Also, Sundays. To get away, to climb the stairs, to meet with Jesus only, with others. Peter. James, John, maybe the people you're sitting with right now who also follow him 
and celebrate Jesus together. See him in his glory together. There's nothing like being with God's people. This is one of the avenues God uses. Notice I didn't say the beach on Sunday. (laughs) Beaches and Sundays. So that's the first thing. How else do we better position ourselves to glimpse glories of Jesus resurrected to both listen to and behold Jesus only? To go with the intention of getting away to behold and listen to Jesus only. Now that, we see here Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus to signify a picture of heaven. This would give the disciples a picture. They're die, they've died, they're with God, now they're here. This is what heaven's going to look like with Jesus in the middle. So that's one reason they appear, but also it's because, as we saw earlier in the book of Malachi, these were the last two figures to appear in God's word. Remember, you've heard about Moses and his law. You heard about Elijah and his coming. These are the last two figures to appear in God's word 450 years earlier. Talking about the day of the Lord. So the apostles would see, here's a picture of heaven, and here in Jesus is the day of the Lord. This is the moment where he is breaking into history to turn children back to the way of their fathers, to turn, in other words, people back to a relationship, to a covenant with God. This is the moment. Heaven breaking in, the day of God breaking into history. And, but then, then, the hall of fame disappears, right? The hall of faith, Moses and Elijah, disappear, leaving Jesus only. That's also on purpose. It's great to see these people. It's great to know this is heaven. It's going to like then, looking around, they saw no one but Jesus only. It might seem like an obvious point that you want to get away to be with Jesus only. Man, of course I want to get a time alone, away from my everyday crosses, away from the sweat of life, from the difficulties I go through. Of course I want to get away with Jesus. Yet, yet, it's difficult. Yet we often go to secondary sources like books, like broadcasts and their authors and speakers, to the little sayings and inspirations that we pick up because they're more convenient, whether they be from Facebook, from an interview on TV, from something we find online, because we tell ourselves it's quicker, it's more practical, it's not as hard as the Bible. Moses and Elijah, though they were revered, though they were beloved, they're secondary sources. They must disappear so the disciples can see Jesus only. Yeah, we wish to be alone and we'll distract ourselves to be alone, but we distract ourselves usually with other relationships, not quite getting to Jesus only. How easy would it have been for the disciples to get up on that mountaintop as they're walking For Peter to say, man, it's great just to be with my mates, James and John. Just chat it up a bit. Or for for Peter to look at James and John and say, hmm, I wish I had their relationship with Jesus. I wish I I could recline on Jesus' neck like like John does. And you kind of look to your friends and you kind of get with your friends and you're distracted by just being with Jesus only. So we say we want to be alone. We want time to rest. But we allow ourselves to be distracted. Away from Jesus only. We also get into our own head. We can't get out of our own way. Right? 
the voices in our head keep going. If you ever try to spend time with God, whether it be on the beach or on a mountaintop, and you get there, and you can't quiet the voices in your own head, that's what happens to Peter, right? He gets a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and he doesn't know how to respond, what to say, because he's so self-aware, he says, Rabbi, it's so good that we're here. Uh, why don't I make some tents for us? All right, some hospitality tents, as it were. And so the father silences Peter, doesn't he? He says, this is my beloved son. Just listen to him. Just listen, Peter. What are the noises? What other noises are crowding out the voice of Jesus only in your life? What other distractions are you chasing and that are leading you away from the Savior? None of these things can give you the resurrection power needed to endure. Not little inspirations, not secondary sources, not just kind of like looking to the relationship of God with your, of your friends, not self-coaching in your mind, but just being with Jesus only. Thirdly, how do we get in a better position to glimpse a glorious view of Jesus? To view your glimpse. To view the glimpse of Jesus through his death and resurrection. And we're going to settle in here to end our time today. To view your glimpse of Jesus, this powerful encounter that you have with Jesus through his cross and resurrection. And I'll explain what I mean. But let me say first, though, my prayer this week has been that all of you, whether it be right now through, through looking at the person of Jesus and his words burning in your heart, or whether it's going to be as we sing and you, God just breaks into your life and you know that he is. My prayer has been that all of us have an encounter, a glimpse of Jesus glorified, of the resurrected Jesus. Let me say that. It could be later today, it could be reflecting back on how good Jesus has been on your life here on Easter. It could be listening to your kids say, man, I really heard about Jesus this morning, and it was really cool. And you know, wow, this is awesome. I'm seeing Jesus glorified here in my life. Whatever it is, I'm praying that you encounter a glimpse of Jesus glorified this morning. So know that. Now look, in chapter 8, after finally seeing Jesus as the Christ, the disciples finally get it, and here... These are the final two times Jesus is going to say, shh, 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 just don't tell anybody. And I haven't, I haven't addressed that yet in our series on Mark. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he say, yeah, guys, don't say anything yet. And he adds here, until the Son of Man is risen, right? He says that in verse 9. Why is that? Why the secrecy? Here's why. A glorious glimpse of Jesus can be only understood rightly through his death and resurrection. The others and the disciples might tell, hey man, we were up on this mountain, Jesus started glowing. <laughs> we saw Moses and Elijah. To others, Jesus' glowing might sound like a parlor trick or, or a mystical power encounter. It was very common in first century Palestine at that time. And clearly the disciples don't yet get why they've seen Jesus glorified. They don't get like what's happening here, that this is a picture of his resurrection to come. So that's what they say in verse 10. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, they don't get it yet. So they have to shut up. (laughs) Peter speaks about his glimpse of Jesus' glory, but not through the lens of his cross and resurrection. The Father shuts him up, saying, listen to my son. What then does Jesus say? Well, Mark, being the action gospel, doesn't tell us what Jesus says up to this point. But Luke's gospel does, and I want to share that with you. Listen to this. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And they spoke, here's the conversation piece, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You hear that? The father says, shh, listen. Listen to Jesus only. What is he saying? He's talking about his departure. He's talking about his death and resurrection. Even this amazing moment in and of itself, all the talk centered around Jesus' plan of the cross and resurrection. So don't pretend to understand an encounter with Jesus except through the cross and resurrection, his death and resurrection. And what's interesting about Scripture's testimony of the resurrection is that God always couples it with a necessary death. All right, and I want you to see this. This is important for where we're going to hit home on this. All right, so whether it's a glimpse of glory such as here's the transfiguration, right? The, the subject talk, it's all about his departure, his death. The Son of Man must be rejected also. He must die. All right, but also in Jesus' teaching on his resurrection glory. In John chapter 12, verses 23 through 24, it says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about there? His resurrection. In other words, for life to happen, death also has to happen. It has to. He keeps the same message going about our resurrection bodies. The Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless what it dies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised with power. One more example. If you want to carry around the smile of a resurrection encounter of Jesus, if you've encountered Jesus before and you know what that's like, you're just walking around like, yes. Listen to what else you have to carry around. 2 Corinthians 4.11 We who are alive in Jesus also carry around with us the death of Jesus. We who are alive are always being given over to death so that his life may be revealed in our bodies. You have to die if you want life. That is the clear and consistent testimony of Scripture where the resurrection power gives life. Something in us has to die. Let me give you a few examples of how this might happen in life. Again, I can't explain God breaking into your life and showing you a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. But when it happens, here's how you can understand it, okay? Let's use the I am's of Jesus as an example. It's very probable ones at that. So, for example, I am the bread of life. You have a power encounter with Jesus as the bread of life. 
And he says to you, I can sustain you where you lack, where there seems to be nothing else to get you up in the morning. I will feed you with love and remind you of how much I love you and how much you are worth to me. Now let that relationship upon which you've come to depend die. Let it die. That relationship that you're hoping in, that you're depending in, let it die. I've given you the power. I've given you a picture of myself. You can let it die now. Or, I am the door. You have the power encounter with Jesus as the door to life. He says, I am the escape from addiction or idolatry for which you feel shame. I am the door out of mediocrity and powerlessness and purposelessness. So he says, get rid of that subscription to, to cable that rules you from checking your, your, your internet after 11 p.m. Put to death your leisure schedule as you know it. Whatever it might be, the cross you have to take up, whatever changes you need to make, Jesus gives you that resurrection glimpse. See, but something must die in us. You see that? So Friday night's Tenebrae service was amazing. I, 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 if you weren't here, I wish you were. I hope you come to another one. It was incredible. Meditating on the agonies and resulting death of Jesus was, was moving. Now for me personally, the final song we sang, God gave me a glimpse of his glory, of the resurrection glory of Jesus. This final song is called Your Blood Says Everything, which is based on Hebrews 12.24. And I got this glimpse by faith of heaven breaking open, Jesus' glory. And it brought me to tears as, as he reviewed in my mind, by faith, some of the great things in my life. Like it was a short film, some of these great moments that he has worked in my life. And I, and I, by faith, sensed him saying, all of these are because of my blood. Everything that's right about your life in my sight is because I made you right in the Father's sight. You see, what did that do? It made me want, I just, I just want to, okay, I surrender Jesus. I surrender all that I held dear, all my rights, all the things I feel like I deserve, surrender to your plan. Now, Friday was a struggle for us because Katie was serving in kids ministry that night. Things were a bit hectic. The plan was after the service to go home get the eat, get the kids in bed, and just sort of rest together over a movie. But after getting the kids to bed, again, that word came to mind. I saw the kitchen, and the word came to mind, surrender. <laughs> when I looked at the kitchen, looked at the dishes, surrender your plan, Ryan. I know our, our Saturdays are a struggle for Katie when our kitchen starts out a mess. And I was just still so affected, so glowing, so moved by this picture of Jesus. I had the strength to say to Katie, hey, let's hold off on a movie. Let's and start with the kitchen. Let's just start with the kitchen. I got to work, right? Now, first of all, that's not me normally. But you also might object, that's a pretty ordinary picture for glory, Ryan. You know, that's like a, that's like a one-time, maybe one-day, two-day kind of ordinary obedience, but that's exactly why Jesus gives us glimpses of his glory and empowers us with resurrection dynamite. That is why ordinary, everyday obedience. Some of you want Jesus because you want to get shivers down your spine or you want to get a spiritual high, right? 
You want this thing you can talk about later to other people. Yeah, I experienced that too. But he gives it to you to have the power to die and to change. The resurrection proves he's powerful enough to change you so you can let it go. You can die. Right? Jesus, or through his resurrection, Jesus proves he's powerful enough to change. At the cross, he proves you to you he loves you. So you know that that change is good. And we need both, right? We need to know he's good. And we need to know that his goodness is more than a Hallmark card. It actually works. He changes people. I want to encourage you this morning, acknowledge what needs to die when you encounter Jesus and let it go. Let it go. Satan would wish to keep you thinking on it. He'd wish to say, look, look at your cross. Look what you have to give up. I know this is a great experience, but look what you have to give up. Are you sure that you want Jesus only? Now let it go. Let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Don't care about what people think of you and say anymore. It's going to kill you anyway. His cross proves he loves you better. His resurrection proves that his changes are everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your plan, for Jesus to die the death we deserved so that we might have the resurrection that he pioneered, that the trail that he blazed to everlasting life. What's amazing about this otherwise weird story, Jesus, is you knew the disciples were going to go through crosses. They were going to head down this mountain. They were going to go through difficulties. Things were going to get hard. And they knew they'd have to let go of some of the things they once held so dear. Their rights, their idols, their habits, their addictions, their little self-indulgences. They would have to let go in order to choose you. And so, you gave them the power. And you still give us the power today because of your resurrection. Because you defeated death. And you still shine into our hearts today by the Holy Spirit. May we encounter you, Jesus, this morning, even this morning, that we might die and that your life might shine through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.